Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. I'd have to say that Austin Goolsby may be among the brightest and most engaging people that I've ever known. I met him back in 2004 when he was volunteering as an economic advisor to then-State Senator Barack Obama, who was running for the U.S. Senate. Uh, He then became a principal advisor on economics uh, during the 2008 presidential campaign and went on in the White House to become chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, He is a a noted economist at the University of Chicago, has written widely uh, on economics, including some early path-breaking work on the internet and the impact that it would have on our economy. I sat down with Austin last week to talk about all of that and about where we are now in our economy in this new era. Austin Goolsby, always good to see you. We were just talking before we went on the air about sharing an office during the 2008 Obama campaign in which great merriment took place, usually with you as the precipitant. Yeah, I was not the butt of the joke, yeah, I hope yeah. you were But the rest say. of us who had to actually get work done, <laughs> <laughs> well, we enjoyed it. It had its, it had its upsides and its downsides, but, uh, but it's always good to... Uh, to see you, what little known for people who um, never have heard you speak, if there is any such person. Uh, I actually used you, do you remember this, as a voiceover person? For an ad. For an ad, yeah, yeah. Be- because you had that sort of beer commercial growl in your voice that sounds like, uh, that sounds like Texas, even though you mostly grew up in California. But t- tell me about the Goolsbees. The Goolsbees, my dad's family is from Waco, Texas. My mom's family was from Abilene. I was born in Waco. They moved to California when I was a kid. Why? And, um, my dad got a, was working for his brother. His brother ran a trucking company in California. Um, Your dad was a lawyer, right? He had he a had law, a law degree, degree, but he but was he in practice. business. Uh-huh. And um, so they, they ran a trucking company. I mean, this is, I was a little kid, so I don't, looking back, I think it was, trucking was heavily regulated to 1978. Maybe the company lasted to 1978 and then, you know, and then, uh, and then my dad moved to, um, he worked for a company that uh, made the truck trailers, not, not the front Mm -hmm. of the truck, but the trailers. Uh, And so I mostly grew up there and then they there was Whittier California Whittier California That's birthplace you, you of uh, Richard Nixon yeah right? Richard Nixon yeah um and where what what kind of name is Goolsby anyway not it totally made clear. Up, they've think. been around yeah. for a long time in the U.S. I think they came from Goolsby Scotland in oh, like well, the 1700s or something yeah that um, would make sense they they 
they w- originally. Did you ever go came back to there Virginia? to Goldsby, Scotland? I, I haven't, but I should. I would yeah, like to. Yeah. Um, Heroes. They, they were the Goolsbys are kind of proof that what times that seem like everyone is famous, uh, you know, like Revolutionary War times. It's not true. The Goolsbees are proof that they, they were there. They never did anything. They're no, there's there's barely any record of them. The, as they go through the censuses, the Goolsbees, my if my last name is spelled kind of funny. Um, they Austin's were illiterate. Unusual, uh, yeah, unusual they they were illiterate, and uh, and so their name just kept getting changed as the as they fill in, you know, by whoever's the census taker. So some people will look at that and say that's totally phonetic. And and it is, but yeah. not by accident. <laughs> that's uh, that's that's how I got there. So they weren't providing economic advice to George Washington. <laughs> I don't, not not as far as I know. And it, uh, so and and now my parents retired back to Abilene, Texas. Oh, is so, that right? Yeah. So so we still get to uh, to go back and see the old you, the old country. And and your mom worked at the telephone company in California. Yeah, twenty five years maybe. She was uh, she worked at the phone company. She did different things. She was a trainer. She uh, she was uh, she's a, she's a spunky. She's a spunky broad. And how did she? And 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 so the question is, how did you become this uh, child economic prodigy? I mean, did they did they, they sent you away? Right, you went to. Uh, you went to boarding I school? I went to boarding school. They didn't say... Uh, I don't want to make it, it sound long, like that. Look, yeah, it, it's a... Uh, I can only imagine what you were like as a kid, so it occurred to me they may, <laughs> they may really have sent you away. Maybe they were just away. trying to get that, me out Yeah, I shouldn't have said that. Um, the, as an only child, uh, my parents put a, a huge value on education, and the schools where, where we were weren't that great. I was through a... Through a odd program, I had been identified as when I, when I was young and moved into some accelerated track. And the, this program was trying to encourage people to graduate from high school tremendously early and go to college as as a kid. So I was on path to graduate from high school when I was thirteen or fourteen or something. Seems unhealthy. My, yeah, it seems unhealthy. And my parents. We did a show with Ronan Ronan Farrow who went to. Uh, I guess Yale at uh, at the age of eleven. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So you know it, it wasn't as extreme as that. Mom, I think my parents were were kind of like, wait, this doesn't make sense. Why does it? Isn't there a better? I don't think it was option? Yale. Actually, I think that's and, where he uh, went to law school. And so, so we looked at those schools, and I and I uh, I I went to boarding school for for high school, and. Did, was that because your parents felt you'd get a better yeah, education? Yeah, they thought they they didn't know that much about it, but they thought those are supposed to be the best schools anywhere. So you know, if you can go to that, maybe maybe we should go look at them. We visited. I I went to the school Milton that's outside yeah. of Boston. We visited um, on a day, and my mom said, uh, "You know, I like this school." There's a there's a girl in football pads. You know, it's probably co-ed football team. That's great. <laughs> and my dad looked and was like, I don't know. There's someone with a siren light on their head, and it was <laughs> it, it, it was known as Space Day. It was like the costume day. But um, 
Did uh, you know you know who uh, went to Milton Academy is Deval Patrick? The, yes, Deval uh, Patrick uh, came from the south side of Chicago. And Tommy Vitor, you know, we, we got Tommy Vitor. We got kind of a ah. the triple threat going. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I loved math and science, and I I was big on the speech team and politics even yeah. then and i was like why was that why out, was that is it just coming from know. richard nixon's hometown yeah, no, maybe there was that maybe i was just you know i was i was too loud always um <laughs> and yeah i i was as as a freshman i was the uh I was the middle linebacker on the freshman football team. Now that is, and uh, you, if you look uh, at me, Ameri- I was the same size I yes, am now. Which yes, is this not- is a podcast, but <laughs> I'm looking at a man who could be a number two pencil <laughs> sitting across and, the uh, table from me. And so they, I would like to say that that's because everyone knew I was the toughest SOB alive, but it was actually because the lack of applicants no the middle linebacker is the guy who has to call the plays oh and they asked the coach asked on day one who's the loudest everyone pointed and said that kid and that's how i got so you job. called the play and said <laughs> so, okay guys let me know how it turns like, out everyone go left and I'd be, I'd be going right so um, um so this debate uh, the, so the, i kind of come the, economics the, the, kind of in a way combined those two things um and that's how that's how I got into it, and I, and I was kind of into it early on. And, and uh, now your I had your some dad your dad uh, the the uh, college counselor at your school was married to Chip Chip Case. Case. Yes, uh, that's true. The, uh, Case Schiller. Wow, this is you, home you got, price. You got some real index. research going. Yeah, here. we you just wait, brother. We're just getting started here, so it's about time you pay up those parking tickets. <laughs> uh, but what what. Uh, so explain what the uh, what what the uh, Case Shiller Home Price Index is because that's something we were we yeah, we, we, we were, were looking, looking at, at religiously when, exactly the, when the housing right. market uh, collapsed. Okay, so the Case Shiller Home Price Index, Chip Case and his wife Susie Case, who taught at, at my high school, are two of the just Chip Case passed away now, but they were just two of the most just the greatest people that that you could ever meet. Um, now, Chip Case's Case Chiller price index is a measure for most of the large housing markets of the country. They track the exact same house when it's sold and then resold as a way of kind of measuring the consumer price index of houses. Yes. Uh, so it said we can control for the quality of the house because it's literally the same house. You know, it was sold this year and two years later it was sold again. How much did it go up? And uh, so that's, that started really all of these repeat sale home price indices, as they call them, which are the gold standard for how do you measure what's happening now. And you and, and you were interested in that back then? Did you know what he was doing? And- yeah, well, I mean, a little. I was a high school student. He helped me get a job as a research assistant for a guy at the Boston Fed. So when I was in high school, I was going over there and, and uh, working on some economic stuff. And actually, he chip took me to a to a academic seminar um, that was on housing you know back then in the dinosaur days and uh, and it was a paper presented by his co-author Bob Schiller who would later win the Nobel Prize and and a bunch of the economists famous economists we know at that time were at that seminar and uh, 
And it was just a funny, that was a funny moment. But Chip was a great mentor. And then when I went to college, I had some amazing teachers and, uh, and I kind of never looked back. So economics was for me from the beginning. Right. In college, uh, James Tobin, uh, who was a Nobel prize winner, was one of your mentors there, great Keynesian, uh, economist. And just a, another really super decent Midwestern guy. Um, and I, I I grew quite close with him. And I would He would go to northern Wisconsin every summer, and I would take care of his house. And his giant, gigantic Newfoundland dog probably weighed 125 pounds. And, uh, so if I, I had I known still, these techniques, I probably could have done well in college. Too. <laughs> and so, so Jim Tobin was a big guy. You know, he's probably six three and stocky guy, and uh, so he told so me. So he looked like a middle linebacker. He, he looked like a middle linebacker, and he said, "Okay, here's the thing: you're going to have to give this dog a heartworm pill." And I said, oh, "Okay, yeah, what do yeah. you put it in <laughs> peanut butter or something?" No, no, he said he'd taste it; he'll spit it out. What you got to do is this: he kind of grabs him around <laughs> the neck like a lion tamer. He shoves the thing down his throat, and the dog's like, <clears throat> and he says, "You just do that each morning." And the, <laughs> so the very first day, I walk in, I pick up the little jar of those heartworm things, and the dog just goes. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'm done with that. <laughs> I was like, I'm sorry if that dog dies of heartworm, but you know that's that's. But but the be. dog didn't obviously because <laughs> your career progressed. You were uh, in college. Uh, you were both uh, a champion debater, and you were on the uh, improvisational uh, college comedy troupe. This just add water group. Let me set that aside for a second because I want to ask okay. about this comedic streak of yours. Okay. Um, the, um, but the debating thing is of interest to everyone right now because you defeated a guy, you and your partner defeated a, a fellow uh, debater from Princeton, I guess, uh, named Ted Cruz. Yeah, many times, not, not just <laughs> once. All right. Well, he's an avid listener of this podcast, so I'm sure you'll, <laughs> he'll be happy to hear that you, you, you pointing out that it wasn't just one time, but many times. But tell me about the young Ted Cruz, and is he much different today? Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know him that well. I see him around sometimes. He seems somewhat similar. Um, <laughs> which is to say? Which is to say, look, Ted, Ted was was he was definitely out looking for himself you know at that time um he had, he, he had a lot of pride um uh, and that was in a way how i'd get him i'd uh i'd uh, many of our rounds would end with ted red in the face you know like how, how would I, like, like how what would you do? dare you <laughs> he would he would start you know we would whatever we'd be debating you know EPA regulation or something, and uh, and somehow he would find a way to tie in that his father had swam to this country from Cuba with no money in his in his pocket or something, and so I would start, uh, I would make jokes. In this, you don't you're not debating directly to each other; you're debating in front of a judge. Right. So I would get the judge 
you know, laughing. I don't know what I get the judge laughing kind of <clears throat> at Ted, and then that, that would really make him mad. So, so have you been in touch with Beto <laughs> Beto O'Rourke? I I have been a little bit. Uh huh. Has yeah. he asked you about this very thing? How to debate he, Ted Cruz? He, his his people talk to me a little bit about it. Uh huh. Now, I, look, I don't know the the people underestimate Ted Cruz at their peril because nobody's better. Nobody was better then at setting a trap and working it through beforehand. Ah, I'm going to say this, and he's going to respond that, and then Ted will drop it on him, and uh, and he does his homework, and he's very skilled. So, mm -hmm. so everybody should, you know, take a deep breath if you're going to go down and try to out debate Ted Cruz. You better. You but you better could out needle him. You better, yeah, you, you could out needle him, but you better be ready, you know, yeah. and have done your homework. Um, so, so the the improv group. I mean, have you always been funny? Like, have you? Uh, is this a product I mean, of being I mean, an only child? Did you I mean, have to entertain be, I yourself? Might be emotionally stunted. That was kind of my my coping <laughs> mechanism for for everything, you know. So, uh, so, so, tell me why you're attracted to that in college. You, you. I should point out that when we were in Washington, you were voted the funniest person in Washington, which may sound like being the tallest midget. But they're actually funny. They're actually funny people in Washington. That was a contest, yeah. and uh, and as I say, it's true. I won the contest, and the runner-up was Grover Norquist, who ended up who winning <laughs> in subsequent years. Grover's and, Grover's and, funny, and, and I. Uh, I would say both Grover and I were we were about as funny as what what you would expect at the DC's funniest celebrity contest. You know, <laughs> I, I was the last one to speak. It had gone. It was supposed to go an hour or something, and it was like two and a half hours in. And uh, my wife was there, and she leaned over before I went in, and she was like, "Honey, if you can't beat these people." You're gonna to have to slink out of here because nobody's gotten a laugh the entire night. Love it, one. Love it, one. Then the next year, I, yeah. I consider him my protege. Is that right? Yeah, I'm sure he considers you yeah. his mentor as well. <laughs> although I've never heard him mention that. Yeah, but, true. Uh, um, uh, and then you, you, uh, you obviously excelled at what you were doing. You ended up at a freakishly young age going and you got your masters and. And a PhD at, M at MIT, master's at Yale, PhD uh, at MIT, and then you came to the University of Chicago uh, as a uh, an assistant professor at 25. So, how were you received by these students? M most of them were probably about your age or older. Yeah, not not totally well. There was there was one guy that I had gone to college with and one guy I went to high school with and they were particularly they they wanted to either have nothing to do with me or or you make clear that uh, I don't know. It it, it it was totally uh in a way love at first sight at the university. I had been to Chicago maybe one time in my life when in our improv group went on tour one spring break I was in Chicago we played up at Second City and that so that was all, all I knew Hallowed about Chicago absolutely improv, it was yeah. amazing that's the only part of the city that I'd ever been to I got a job I came out here and I fell in love with the city I fell in love with the university and now you can't blow us out of here with dynamite I mean it's it's uh it also it, is a, it, probably it really I'm, I'm, felt like we're sitting on the wonderful. campus here at the Institute of Politics as we have this discussion. Uh, it's a great place if you like a good argument. 
Yeah, that's true too. And uh, and it's one of the only places. Um, and and I I kind of think that when President Obama, President Obama was kind of a creature of the campus, in the sense that University of Chicago is one of the last places in the academic firmament where there's there are still people with a lot of different views, but in both in politics, there's conservatives and liberals, you know, especially among the economists. But also within economics, there's micro and macro and just very, they're behavioral people and neoclassical people. And it's one of the only places left where they're going down into the seminar room every week. You know, and as they say here, it's Chicago's a place where the, the seminar is a full contact sport. And they're in there and they're hammering it out, but they're they actually love each other and, and, you know, conservatives and liberals, behavioral and neoclassical, and they're, they're arguing, but they really care and they care about each other personally. And they're, it has, it's a ferment that has hatched a lot of amazing thinkers. It's, it's really quite a place. And I kind of think that Obama certainly had that vibe you know, in 2006 and seven and eight, when he's running, the ability to, to say, okay, look, here's, here's a different perspective and I can describe your point of view in a way that you don't find insulting and you don't want to interrupt me and go, no, 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 no that's not what I think. You say, yes, I, I do agree with that. Mm-hmm. And here's the part where I don't agree. That's a discipline that comes out of a, an environment where there's healthy debate. I want to get to him in a second because that's how we got to know each other way back in 2004 when he was running for the U.S. Senate and some guy named Austin Goolsby was supplying us with economic advice. <laughs> Nobody had ever laid eyes on you. Would come in over the transom or something. Yeah. But um, but you, uh, you uh, were a... Um, noted critic of the Bush administration economic policy as an academic and as a commentator uh, and the notion you you were critical of Martin Feldstein in the Council of Economic Advisors in the sense that massive tax cuts would somehow pay for themselves and uh, particularly tax cuts for wealthy uh, people. Talk to me a little bit about that. Okay. In my own research, I kind of have two areas. One's about industries and the internet. We're going to get economy. to that too, yeah. The other's about taxes, just bread and butter, public economics and the role of government. And, and my research was critical, not, not in a personal way. Marty Feldstein is a, is a giant of the field. Mm-hmm. He's got some academic research, which kind of pointed to something like a Laffer curve type argument. Mm-hmm. Where they say, "Look, uh, you know, supply side economics, yeah, supply side pay, economic tax style stuff. Tax cuts yeah. can pay for themselves. Tax cuts are going to generate uh, massive economic activity, or at the least, it's going to lead high income people to report a lot more income if you lower the rate." And I, I, I along with a, a bunch of others, did a series of papers of economic research looking at the history of that. What does, does the history back that up or not? And, and I think 
the history doesn't back that up at all. I think if you if you look at it, the history's quite clear that that's not the case. And, and yeah, we just went down and that yeah, road again. Yeah, we just went down it. That's what I was going to say. I can't. It's it's hard to it's hard to know what to make of a world where we just do that again, and then it doesn't do what they promised it was going to do, and then they come back and they say, oh, let's do it. And you say, wait, we just did that. It didn't work. And they say, no, no, and they do it again. And then and we just and where do you, uh, you know, since we're there, where do you think we, where do you think we are now? We've, with the tax cuts have been passed. Uh, the economy in the short term seems to be roaring along, something that's been going on, I'm sure you would point out, uh, for some time, starting in the, uh, in the post-Recovery Act period of the Obama administration. But um, where do you think, what do you think the long-term impacts of these tax cuts are going to be? Look, I think the long-term impact, in my opinion, is going to be relatively modest. And the, the fact that when they sold the tax cut, it was on the grounds, ah, we're going to do this and it's going to raise the average worker's wage by $4,000. And then real wages are at best stagnant. And and I think since the tax cut's been enacted, w- real wages actually might have fallen. Um, and if you say, well, you know, hashtag, where's my $4,000? Uh, then they kind of say, well, no, we never meant that it was going to be right away. And who told you that uh, wages were going to go up? I think that's exactly what you would have expected. And that's what you got. Well, what, the theory say, was that corporate, the, that corporate corporations would prosper and they have. Yeah. And corporate that balance sheets are, are booming and they, they would, would have and that to would, pay higher wages. Right. Now, th- th- thus far, they haven't. Now, may you might say, well, maybe they will five years. Why haven't from wages now. gone up given how far unemployment totally has plummeted? Um, that, that's a big puzzle, and the economists are arguing up about that a lot because it does seem like the job market is very healthy. You know, the unemployment rate uh, at least looks low. Just the j- number of jobs created has slowed a bit. You know, from the from the end of the Obama administration, but it's still pretty strong. The the hypotheses include one that the unemployment rate isn't doesn't mean the same thing as it used to mean that you know three point eight percent with as many people with the the share of out of the labor mm-hmm. force being bigger than it than it ever was before three point eight percent today is whatever is the is the old four point eight percent or something mm-hmm. so that maybe there's still some slack in the labor market. A second group says that it's just mismeasurement, and maybe the maybe wages actually are up. Uh, you know what the economists call composition bias. There's some some arguments like that. There's some groups that say it's about globalization or technology or for whatever reason they're not. Um, yeah, you've been uh, you've been skeptical of both theories. Yeah, I've kind of been skeptical. And then there's another, which is about bargaining power, that worker bargaining power companies have gotten more concentrated and they're able to kind of squeeze more out. Well, they they the, don't have the to share their profits. The number of unionized employees U- Unions are percentages down. Concentrations gone, are up, you know, you know, really across the board in a lot of industries. And that th- those those guys kind of argue we ought to have tougher antitrust enforcement and break up monopolies and stuff like that. 
I think the jury's still out. We don't uh, we don't know which it is. The if you thought it was about globalization, um, there was one group that it kind of feeds back into the tax cut, where they said, ah, what's what's actually happening is these companies are making money, but the money's offshore, and if you would just give them a way to bring all that money back, then they will raise the wages. Mm -hmm. I kind of think the tax cut proved that it it wasn't that, because... my summary of what happened in the tax bill is you gave something like $2 trillion tax cut, mostly to big corporations, some part to high-income people, very modest to everyone else. And mostly it's going to just do that. It's just going to be a handout of money for investments that they that they already made. Okay, so if you say, how did we have a system where we had the highest corporate rate on the books in the world, but the actual taxes paid by our corporations were no higher than average, and corporate profit as a share of GDP was was where, at all-time all, record exactly, levels. Yeah. So it kind of seems like how do we square that circle? The answer was because... We had long ago, we the economists had long ago said that the highest bang for the buck is to use your money to incentivize investment. Don't just cut the corporate rate and give a windfall to a bunch of stuff that's already been been built. But they did include but like they, they did accelerate depreciation and things like that. Yeah, they did some they did mm-hmm. some on the investment side and in my view, as you know, when, when we were in the White House from early on, I'm not a, against lowering the corporate rate. I just wanted them to pay for it. I, I mean, yeah, just take two well, trillion I mean, dollars. Classical tax reform yeah. would have included closing uh, loopholes. Yeah, comp- or uh, look, to- narrow, what we had is a narrow base and a high rate because we were trying to incentivize investment, and you can reduce the rate. If you broaden go the base. Bro- you broaden, broaden the, base, the base, but you got to do more than just loopholes. You got to you got to mm-hmm. go after some stuff that people like. You know whether it's the healthcare exclusion or the R and D tax credit or accelerated depreciation or a whole bunch of things like that. Instead, they did what was basically, as I say, big windfall, and. The, the logic of that windfall was, well, if we would increase corporate profit, that will have a bunch of benefits to the economy. And I guess my two questions of that are, number one, corporate profit was already at the highest level that it's really ever been, and they, that wasn't leading to big wage increases, and it wasn't leading to very high investment of, of the form that they mm-hmm. that they promised. So why would you think that cutting the corporate tax rate a, a bit more would do it? And then two, if you're of the view, there there are kind of two worldviews on where growth comes from. And one worldview says it's about the absence of government. And if you would just get rid of every regulation and get and get rid of all taxes, then the private sector will just generate. You have lots some of colleagues who would and, argue and that I have point. colleagues who would argue that. Yeah. And there's some element of truth, but I think a major puzzle to people who espouse that worldview is how to explain 
why Silicon Valley, for example, is in California, where they've always had high taxes, they've always had high regulations, and it's not on the island of Vanuatu, where <laughs> I think they don't have any taxes of any kind yeah. on corporation capital gains. I just actually vacation there, and it's yeah. lovely. <laughs> Sometimes yeah. I'll say that, and, and, there, and, and in the audiences, uh, there will be people come up, where is this island of Vanuatu? Uh, but, you know, the, my, my worldview is Silicon Valley's in California not because it's cheap, but because they can't afford to be somewhere else. That's where the that's, that's where, where the talent, talent is. is. Yeah. That's where the people are, yeah. and and so if you cut the taxes by so much that you can't afford to invest in your people, you're actually killing yourself. And the same is true on regulation. Look, uh, when we were there, sweating bullets, thinking through the financial crisis, I thought at that time the the one silver lining here is that the argument that always and everywhere deregulating and ripping up the rules of the road is good for the economy, that'll be dead. The, these, the events of the financial crisis proved that wrong. And it wasn't, what, two years after the financial crisis, they're back. They're saying the same thing. Oh, we need to deregulate. You've seen the, the administration well, saying, you know, well, let's the, get rid the of the refrain Dodd you'll hear from the friends of both of ours uh, in this debate is that it was it was really the uh, the uh, it was Fannie Mae and Freddie that led the market down the it was the government uh, sponsored uh, yeah you know everybody wants there to be accountability for somebody else and look with Fannie and Freddie I, I'm an economist you're never going to find economists who who put value on the Fannie and Freddie business model. And if we reinvent them the way they were before, shame on us. Mm -hmm. They should never socialize losses while keeping all profits for yourself. That's a that's a terrible idea, and it ends exactly the way this one ended. Now, that said, A, the it, there, there was a year that the Cleveland Browns went 0-16. And... I guess maybe they had the worst kicker in the NFL. And yeah, but look, they got a bad kicker and he might have cost them a few games. This is like blaming their 0-16 season all on the kick. Okay, so yes, Fannie and Freddie are partly at fault. And banks that engage in fraudulent loans are at fault. And people who took out mortgages that they had no business taking out are at fault. And there are a whole bunch of players that contributed to making that a horrible financial crisis. But the argument that if we would just if we had less government, if we had less regulation, then yeah. things will work out better. But that's that was obviously not true. We got, I got a lot of stuff I want to ask you about. So I, I want to just, on the issue of the internet, because you were one of the early guys who looked at the internet. When you started looking at the internet, the big debate was, would the internet you know, benefit or harm consumers? Uh, and you, your answer was it would help by sort of democratizing the marketplace. Yeah. And, and, and that's, uh, that's turned out to be true. What about in terms mostly, of mostly? Although now you know, with the now we're moving back into the French Revolution. You know what? What what's what's been the impact? It's too early to tell. You know, the, so the the first round of the internet was kind of the question of 
should these tech companies be worth as these mm-hmm. massive valuations in the late 90s? And one group essentially said, well, they'll be able to price discriminate and, and charge higher prices and they will be more profitable. And the other group, which I was kind of of that group, said, look, you're going to be able to comparison shop and drive the margins down to nothing. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to become more and more competitive. So if anything, that, that suggests that you know, there are going to be a lot of companies ripe for disruption. Mm-hmm. Mostly, it's been great for consumers. I think that's true. But with the rise of AI and machine learning and predictive analytics, you're now starting to see much more of the personalized pricing, all of this fights within about Google, about Facebook, privacy and what information they have on you and what they're going to use it for. All of that is still is still to be resolved ultimately. Is this enhancing the market power of the buyers or is it enhancing the market power of the sellers? Let me ask you about the sort of the march of technology, which is churning at a faster and faster rate on on jobs. Because I know you've been quoted in places as saying that you don't buy into this notion that uh, that uh, the uh, mechanization of jobs uh, is is going to create is going to destroy us all. Yeah, right. I, look, I think that I am, I'm not. The, I'm probably just the median economist to say, look back over 150 years, we've had a massive amount of mechanization replacement of low-skilled jobs by technology but uh, we do we do have we an do. unemployment rate i guess of 3. i mean and i'm asking this is this is yeah. an honest question because yeah. i this is not my area of expertise yeah. but have we ever had a, a a period of change as profound and broad across so many industries as the technology of today i know the industrial I think revolution we have was, yeah. um, or at least the eco- what the economic historians say they they grow somewhat impatient with the tech people saying that because they trot out the data and they say by by many measures this is a slower uh, period of change then the period first of the industrial revolution then when they bring in electricity and televisions and phones and mm-hmm. and uh, and stuff like that. I don't, I don't know. Um, I do think there's, but there, I mean, your there, answer is predicated, Austin, just to, yeah. your answer is predicated on the notion that, um, people will be trained for the jobs that, that, that what all, yep. all of this, ha- this yep. creates their new jobs are created, old jobs fall away. Yeah. So it isn't that there aren't going to be jobs. The jobs will just be different, be different. but yes. That, but, that's not too. Ro- I'm not trying to. Ro- but I mean, the thing is, that doesn't mean that. that the people who lose the jobs will, will then be get the, the new people. jobs. And in fact, there there is. You generally need more training and more education to do the jobs I, I that are being created. I don't dispute that, and that's why I say I'm not trying to make this out to be overly rosy. Yeah. Of what the how disruptive the transition is. But it does speak to the fact is. that government has a, a role to and play, and the government has a role for sure. Uh, the, what I want to but highlight. But what should that role be? That's the question. Well, uh, you, you're not going to stymie the growth. So it right. has to be education and training. For sure, it? education and training. Now, one of the things you got going in your favor is everybody themselves wants to build a career and you know support their family 
So you don't have to just have some central planner in the government deciding what will be the jobs of the future, and we mm-hmm. got to make sure that we that we have the right training. Everybody's out when they're going to college trying to figure out what do they want to major in and what job do they want to get, and they're they're lo- actively looking what skills do I need to 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 be able to build a career if they're in college. Yeah, if they're in college, the community college system, in my view, is the absolute unsung hero of building up the skill base of the of the US workforce and probably but also probably not the the, the wholly developed force it could be yes and the and I was going to say this to me the saddest thing is that at the very moment when if you look at the data it screams out at you that getting some extra skills or education or cert- certifications etc that the benefit of that has never been bigger. And the community colleges offer that at a very reasonable price, accessible to people all around the country. At the same time, both those things are true. They're being starved for resources and they're in retrenchment. Mm-hmm. They're, they're shrinking, they're cutting yeah. programs because they don't have the money. Yeah. And to me, this is, the, this is where we are in danger as a nation and, and in our states of being so short-sighted that it really undermines our our program. That if we're going to starve ourselves for the revenues that we would use to do that, um, you know, if you if you're the 25th most educated uh, workforce in the world at age 25, you know, in 20 years you're going to be the 25th richest. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we we better we better not forget that. You met uh, well. Well, before I leave this point, the other uh, uh, the other um, ramification of all this, it seems to me, is this extraordinary inequality we've seen. Because if you're on the right side of this digital divide, yep. the opportunities are boundless. If yep. you're if you're on the disrupted side. Uh, you find yourself uh, pedaling faster and faster just to keep your place. And that seems to me yeah. a threat not just to uh, capitalism, but to democracy itself. If people feel the system, as the president likes to say, the system is rigged uh, against against you. I agree with that 100%. And look, we've had episodes where regardless of party, massive increases in wealth amongst small groups, they translate into massive political power and influence. And in a world like that, it, uh, in a way it's not, it's not stable. I, I, I think this is a longstanding trend and we can debate why inequality has risen. But if you don't think that high-income groups have gotten more and more powerful, have a disproportionate influence on the debate as they've gotten richer and richer. I think you haven't really been paying attention. Well, as witnessed by the tax cuts. Sure. Um, so let's go back to your story. You Because we met, in, as I mentioned, 2004. We were a scroungy little Senate <laughs> campaign looking yeah. for somebody to provide yeah. political advice on the economy. You didn't even know Barack Obama, right? You knew. You said you'd know more about Michelle Obama. Yeah, no, Michelle was more famous than him. Absolutely, here. Michelle yes. was more famous, and we we had a bunch of common friends. I knew Valerie. I knew Marty Nesbitt. Valerie Jarrett, Mar- and, Marty Nesbitt, and, yeah. and, uh, friends of the president, and the president's two daughters. My my oldest kid is a 
daughter was also at the lab school here at the university right in between Mm -hmm. is is in between those two so i kind of knew of him from birthday parties and stuff like that um and they so his people called me and said oh you know he's running for the u.s senate would you be willing to help and i was like you're talking about michelle obama's husband yeah of course i'll help (laughs) some people uh, still say that and uh so I started sending you guys memos and they were on some of the craziest topics. So by the, the, the Republican candidate dropped out, yes, we there have. was an argument among the Republicans. Nobody wanted to, another reputable Illinois Republican to have a leg up for the next race. Well, it's so, also, they'd say they had this so bright the, idea that if they brought an African-American candidate that somehow they could offset this very charismatic African-American. Right. So they bring so, in Alan Keyes. So they Keys. bring in Alan Keyes, yeah. who's not even from the state. Right. And he starts proposing things. And so the first thing I prepared you guys a memo, Alan Keyes said that he wanted to follow, he was asked about slavery reparations, and he said, we shall follow the model of the ancient Romans and waive all the descendants of slaves from from all federal taxation for two generations. And he said, and my opponent would not qualify because he's not a he's not a real African American. He's not the descendant of a slave. So my challenge was, can you figure out how much that would cost? And I was like, what? I, I can't even begin to tell you that this is crazy. But I was like, well, I'll get the current population survey. I can find income. I go, I this. So I came back, and I and then and I asked, look, do you want a net present value on this, <laughs> or you want me to just add up forty years of numbers? And, and, and the the view was, whatever's the biggest. And I said, okay, well, the answer is eight trillion. And they were like, ah, oh, that's perfect, perfect. So I so I'd write these so memos. So it was just like, welcome to the and world. And they were of all from. Professor Goolsby. Yes. And so that's what nobody had. I remember the debate when you showed up for the first time. Nobody knew. He he used to, he loved your name. He used to be, because he had this image of a, uh, like a butler. He's like, Goolsby, bring me my tax cuts. So, so, so you were there on that one. Keys had proposed replacing the income tax with the sales tax, but exempting housing, food, clothing, transportation, senior citizens, and poor people. So it wouldn't be regressive. So they asked me, well, what would the rate have to be if you did that? And the answer was like 70%, right. something like yes. that. And uh, so so at the debate, he said, and Keyes kept saying, you should walk across the street and ask a University of Chicago economist. They'll tell you, you know, you don't know. And he said, well, I got one right here. <laughs> and he says, your thing is 70%. Keyes is like, I'm not for that. And, and that, that, was, that was my minor cameo. Yeah. And I came up after, you remember, to the green room, and he opened the door, and he said, who are you? And I said, I'm Professor Goolsby. <laughs> and he's, he looked, he was baffled, and he said, well, what? You, you don't look anything like a professor. I thought I had a seven-year-old guy with a tweed jacket and a pipe, and you, and, 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 and wow. he said, and what is with Goolsby? And I said, look... You're telling everybody you're the skinny guy with the funny name. You stole my bit. That's my thing. And he never called me Professor Goolsby again. No, but he and and you became a fixture around the Obama sort of policy shop in 2008 and 2007, 2008 when he was running for president. As uh, I think I mentioned, we shared an shared an office uh, during that time. Uh, 
I want to just talk about uh, two things that happened in that campaign uh, because we we could do a whole hour on it. But um, uh, the first was the pres- uh, then Senator Obama made a speech at NASDAQ uh, during that campaign. I think you were deeply involved in developing that speech, and it was a real challenge to Wall Street. Um, I, I remember, I'm, I may be getting this wrong, I think one of your concerns was the corruption of the rating agencies and that they were, they were, they had, uh, basically they were conflicted because they were providing private advice and then giving public ratings on different bonds. But there were other elements of what was going on, some of which had to do with the housing market. Uh, and his, uh, this was a year before Lehman Brothers collapsed. But you remember putting that speech together? Yeah, I, re- I remember that very well. And uh, and actually, most things from before the financial crisis about the financial markets, if you go back and read them now, they seem they seem like old black and white movies or something. It's just like to- totally foreign. This That speech really wasn't. Because it had two lessons. It, it, the speech was basically about two things. The first was, if you remember, he went and he said, Wall Street may be on an island, but it's not an island. Right. And you can't think that the middle class is going to struggle the way it has for the last eight years or how many years, that that's not going to have an impact on you on Wall Street. It is. And he said, so tomorrow... I'm going to come out with a tax plan that's that's for tax relief for the middle class, and you shouldn't be against my my program. You should be for it because yeah. it's you're we're all in the same economy, and th- th- yeah, the sort yes, of no, no truer was saving said than that. And and, and he said yeah. in that speech it was yeah. about look if people can't make their mortgage payments that is going to come back on you, and that is what what happened. And then the second part, ironically, not ironically, interestingly, was the same thing we were talking about before. He said, it doesn't make you anti-market to be for rules of the road. That if you rip up the rules of the road so nobody can trust the information, you're setting yourselves up for a catastrophe. And you shouldn't be against sensible regulations right. you should be for it it's good for the market right and if you go back and look at that speech yeah there's some stuff that's outdated but the those two prescient. ideas are actually it was, it was, it was prescient. prescient those are important yeah. ideas it was prescient the second thing is maybe a more painful thing when i remember sort of fondly but the the whole nafta thing where you went to the you went to the canadian embassy you were having a private discussion uh, with them, but you were reported in a memo that went to the prime minister, uh, I think, or the foreign minister in Canada as saying, don't worry about all of this anti-NAFTA stuff that the president is speaking about uh, because uh, it'll be fine. I mean, that he's going to be fine on these issues. What exactly happened Give me the short version because I got some other things. I'll give you the short version. I know it burns you up. It wasn't when you get burned up. That wasn't what happened. You talk for a long time. It didn't happen at all. (laughs) That's that's not the the meeting in question was a meeting that took place months before the Ohio primary, 
Which and is when that which story is when the, hit. When the thing broke. Was, which was and damaging. And it wasn't we, about Obama. If you go look at the memo, it was a question about the Democratic Party mm-hmm. in which they asked me, is the Democratic Party protectionist? And I said, it's not. Look, the Democratic Party is not protectionist. Everybody's fighting. They're in a kind of a populist food fight. But fundamentally, Obama's position was what it was, that we shouldn't throw out NAFTA, but we should put labor and environmental standards in the core of the agreement. The the whole thing broke. It was my first introduction to your world where yeah, it that doesn't was a matter. Welcome to my world it doesn't, what I ma- wanted it to doesn't say. matter what what the reality well, was. A few days after that, the the news agency in Canada that broke that story actually issued a retraction and a, I got a personal apology from the consulate and from the prime minister's office saying, oh, we got the story wrong. We're sorry that that happened, but it didn't make any difference. So let's bring this to date, up to yeah. date now, because uh, just uh, in the last few days, the president announced an agreement with Mexico, but not Canada, that he said might surplant uh, NAFTA. What did you make of all of that? And what do you make generally of the Trump trade policy? <laughs> Look, my... Uh, Every day we don't have a trade war is a good day for the economy, is my starting point. And you couldn't have, if we get in a shooting trade war with China, the number one and two biggest economies of the world in an outright trade war, or with the European Union, or within North America, I think that will put us both on a path for a recession in, in both places. We can go through the details on this purported agreement with Mexico, if you want. No. My, I just want my your general view, assessment of look, it. Look, my general assessment is there's very little there. What's, what, you know, what, what struck me that was, makes yeah. President Trump happy enough to say, oh, well, I got some minor thing on one sector in Mexico, and therefore I'm happy with them, on and I'm not going to blow other stuff victory, up. Yeah. So then fine, fine, let's do that. But if you compare this, for example, to the concessions that Mexico and Canada both made to join the TPP. That was my first reaction. They they offered far more to join the TPP than what... Which is the value of multilateral trade commitments because there are all kinds of trade-offs among all the participants. And And you get, you know, in that case... 12 huge economies to agree to lower tariffs on hundreds of billions of dollars of of mm-hmm. US products. I think it was 18,000 different tariffs being cut including, you know, pushing 100 billion on autos and 40 billion on IT, a bunch on agriculture. In this, look, it's fine. I I I don't fault it's great if they're going to change the local content rules and they're going to put in a a rule that says 40% of the content of the cars has to be made by people who made $16 an hour mm-hmm. or more. Okay. That, that, that's only in, ju- that's just the auto sector. I, I really think that if Mexico, Me- Mexico and probably the Canadians are kind of bewildered and like, wait, this is all we had to offer you. They're like, fine, give me the pen. Let's sign it. We'll be done with this. Yeah. And, in a way, that's that's fine. 
if if like I say, if as opposed to a trade yeah, war. Yeah, as opposed to yeah. a trade war. If if this makes Donald Trump feel good and he can get up and brag and say, I got this thing, great, let him have it. That's you, great. You were uh, an advisor uh, on the economic recovery. You ultimately were chairman of the Council on Economic Advisors. I want to ask you about uh, a couple of things. Um, one is, uh, how much do you think uh, the... How much do you think the things that were done during those years, uh, particularly 2009, when the country was uh, hurtling toward uh, a second Great Depression, how much do you think that that uh, contributed to where we are now in terms of economic growth? And then I want to ask you about the meeting that we both took place on, on the, about the auto, the future of the auto industry, which I think turned out to be one of the president's great uh, decisions, but you were part of a, a pretty, pretty, you know, not heated but vigorous debate there. Maybe I should ask you that first, and then yeah, ask you, you about the to, final. Let's do it. The, let's flip it over. Let's okay. let's flip it to the other thing. You, the question on the table in March of two thousand and nine was: Should the U.S. government go in and essentially bail out Chrysler and GM, which were on the verge of bankruptcy? Yeah. More, and, more than bankruptcy, liquidation. Liquidation, you know, like yes. They're not going to be able yeah. to make the payments. And all of the, uh, the uh, follow-on businesses uh, in the chain behind them. Yeah, so exactly the, the, right. the, the potential of loss okay, of jobs so, was so, and massive. Nobody, and, and if you remember, the political, the polling... Was bad. Was bad. Yeah, I now, was the guy who was delivering that message. Yeah. Everybody remembers, oh, well, you know, anybody would have done that. No, right. the big majority said, Even in uh, Michigan. basically, why should they get special treatment? Right, right. Um, the, the, the controversy there... Was about Chrysler. Was about Chrysler. That's what I was going to say, is we had kind of come to the view that if GM went under, it would... It, the, the spillovers were going to be so negative, you, you just couldn't. So, so they're they're going to do a bailout of GM, and now the question is, can we also bail out Chrysler, or do you endanger the whole thing? That you know, if the mm-hmm. runway can take two landings per minute, and you try to land three, you know, the you're going to have a you're going to have a plane wreck. And on that. And, and it, before that meeting with the president, we had a meeting in Larry Summers' office. Larry where, Summers, the chief economic yeah, he advisor. Yeah, he was the the head of the former NEC, treasury running secretary. the process. Yeah. And Larry put to the group, "How many people think if we do this, Chrysler will still be alive in five years or mm-hmm. three years or something?" And it was fifty-fifty. So. You were on the no. So. I was on the no. I thought I didn't think they could do it. Ten and years later, you know, they're still around. Ten years later, they're still around. And so we go to that meeting, and that, like the decision about Osama bin Laden, was a case where there were a large number of advisors telling the president, I don't think you should do this. I don't think it will work. And the others saying, no, no, it will work. But we're back and forth. And it was greatly to the president's credit that he heard all the arguments and he said, okay, I understand. And he summarized the, our, the, the position of everybody that, that was saying it's too risky to try to save them. He said, I don't, we, we can't afford not to. And 
So we're going to try it. And yeah, he also set up some provisions. So they had, they had to find a partner. They had 30 days to do it. They had to find a partner. They had 30 days. We're not right. going. What had we had been but on this you know dynamic? Think about where, think about, really think about where we are today and where we would have been had, totally. had, had he not stepped in at that moment. I totally agree. And yeah. that was one of many times when I remember thinking, thank God you're not in this guy's shoes and having to make these decisions. Everybody's got opinions, yeah. whatever, but he's he, the guy right. on the, he's going to be on the hook. If this goes wrong, they're going to say, why did you do that? So what is the legacy, the economic legacy of the Obama administration? You know, I view it as kind of two things. The first, which right now nobody talks about, but I think in the end they're going to look back and it was, there was no depression. The shock of 2008, the financial crisis, the hit on household wealth was bigger than the shock in 1929 that created the first depression. And the financial system, financial sector as a whole is bigger as a share of the U.S. economy than it was in 1929. By most attributes, we should have had a depression and we didn't. And that we did not is partly due to good actions by the Fed in the crisis, partly due to some of the things they set up in the Bush administration, but in another heavy measure from actions taken by President Obama, I think they're going to look back and say that they avoided depression was a major, major accomplishment. And then the second legacy, which is a contested legacy, that one it's not contested. Everybody wanted us to avoid that. We avoided it, and we'll look back. Though many don't remember exactly how, now people, how perilous those yeah, times absolutely. were. Absolutely. People want to look back now. We remember because oh, you know, no, you know, we, we, we lived a, in fear every day. It was day. absolute borderline panic, and it was one of those where, I don't know if you remember, when they first turned on the, the big uh, particle accelerator in Europe, there were these... Uh, there were these people who were out there protesting because they said they thought it was going to start a black hole that would swallow the earth. This, in the financial crisis, it would be like it was the scientists saying, don't turn it on. Yeah. We're about to have a black yeah. hole. You yeah. would be more nervous. The more informed you were about the financial system and the economy, the more scared you were at yeah. that moment. Yeah, I remember. And, I remember all those <laughs> meetings. So, yeah. so, uh, so I think that part is is not a disputed legacy, mm-hmm. and it will be looked back as a ma- major accomplishment. The second part that is still disputed is this this argument that having higher income people pay more in taxes, having stronger r- regulations, rules of the road, protecting consumers, invest in the middle class, not high-income people and big corporations, that that's the driver of the economy. Obama tried to put that in place, tried to put in place a more closer to universal health care, partly with the hope that people could leave, they could start their own companies, they could do various things. We'd have potentially more economic dynamism. That's a, He's kind of staked out a position. Trump's position is very different from that position. So that's why I say it's still kind of a disputed legacy, but but I think they will remember it as that. Well, whatever they whatever they remember, they will 
as they think about economic policy, they'll remember Austin Goolsbee because if nothing else, it's an unforgettable name. (laughs) I was telling jokes the whole time. Austin Goolsbee, thanks for your friendship. Thanks for being here. I look forward to many, many more conversations as the years go by. We had some, we had some great times together and we'll have many more. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.